Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots as well as free returns and exchanges and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Shut up and sit down. Hey everybody, Adam and John back with another episode of the Bowhunter Chronicles podcast. And today we've got a special guest on Todd Pringnitz from White Knuckle Productions is here today. And Todd um, is actually uh, from Michigan, and now he kills monster bucks in Iowa, amongst doing many other things in the hunting industry. Um, so we thought it would be a great opportunity to talk to somebody kind of from our area who's kind of evolved into this hunting machine here. So how are you doing today, Todd? Oh, dude, I'm doing awesome, guys. I appreciate you having me on the show. Um, and I mean, of all of all mornings, I was actually getting a cup of coffee here, oh, maybe not a couple hours ago. And I looked out my back window and there was a buck cruising across my backyard. I'm like, oh, man, if that doesn't get you excited, I don't know what. But it was a it was a small little one year old or something. But it was uh, just cool to see bucks up on their feet in the morning. And it is coming, man. It's coming. You know, I kind of alluded to it there in the intro that you were from our area here, western Michigan, and now you reside in Iowa. And it would be easy to look at, you know, what the pictures on social media and everything you're doing with White Knuckle with these gigantic bucks. Um, sure. Kind of take yeah, us yeah. through the progression of, you know, going from Michigan public land to kind of where you're at today. Sure. I um, I basically I'm born and raised in Grand Haven, Michigan, and um, one of my neighbors uh, growing up was kind of like my second father. He was a, one of the sons of a, our neighbors, and he was a big bow hunter. And so, you know, this is the age of Ted Nugent and rock and roll bow hunting. And uh, so I was an, enamored by him and by bow hunting. And so when I was 12, they brought me up north, and I, I grew up hunting around the Scottville, Walhalla area. Um, and then I through about the age of 16, and then my dad bought a small uh, my dad and his friend bought a, a 40 acre piece uh, with a small little cabin on. I mean, just the perfect little deer camp uh, just outside of White Cloud, Michigan. So I basically cut my teeth on public land. Um, and and really, from the time I was young, uh, the first time I saw a doe and two fawns, I think the first morning I was out, I mean, I was absolutely hooked. I got the adrenaline rush and was just, it was 
there was no turning back at that point. And I just kept progressing and progressing. But I would say when I turned 16, my hunting really started to change. I, I was raised to hunt bait piles like everybody else. I mean, your scouting was basically whether you were going to use carrots or sugar beets on that particular bait. <laughs> that was, you know, that was just how we did it. We hunted on the same stands every dime. And um, I kind of got sick of just the way deer were, were always coming in wired up. And I just was like, that's not what they're doing on TV. So I want to hunt like, you know, Jackie Bushman and the guys on TV and kill these big bucks. And um, so when I was 16, I could drive. That's when I started to really evolve and be able to drive my uh, myself around up on the public land up there in the way County. And I started just, I couldn't get enough of just moving around, running, gunning, um, and, and going after these deer where, you know, the guys who kind of taught me, I wouldn't call them lazy, but they were traditional where, you know, they'd sit in the same stand, watch the deer a hundred yards away and complain, well, they're not coming over here without doing anything. And so I just was impatient and I just started moving toward the deer and, and kind of evolved a tactic of, you know, this running and gun hunting, running gun hunting, which is just moving in on the animals. And, and that's where it kind of all started. Um, and then. I think in 2003, um, I was invited to go hunt in Illinois uh, with a, a buddy who had gotten permission to hunt a farm. Uh, and it was actually, they were up on the PM, uh, Pier Market River, fishing salmon and had a couple guys from Illinois, didn't know what the heck they were doing. So they kind of helped them out, told them where to fish in this hole or whatever. And the guys were so impressed, they invited them and said, hey, if you guys ever deer hunt, come on down, we got farmland and we can hook you up with a bunch of farmers down there. So that was in Effingham, Illinois. I ended up going on a hunt there, and in about four days, we ended up uh, seeing a deer from the road. I went and knocked on the door, found out where this buck, uh, you know, who owned the property, tracked down the landowner, got permission, and killed the buck the next morning. Um, and it was just like the biggest. It was like a 130-inch three-year-old at the time. Uh, it was. It might as well have been a Boone and Crockett, but it was like one of those lessons where it was like, if you want it, you have to go get it, and nobody's going to go ask for. Uh, permission for you. So that kind of was the start of it. And a few years later, moved to Iowa and the rest is history. <laughs> it's so funny. You, uh, you mentioned Scottville wall hall. I still hunt. And I, I grew up hunting wall hall. <laughs> that's, Oh my God, you're kidding me. No, that's, I mean, Custer road, all that. Oh my God. Do you know the Eastlings by chance? No, I yes, don't. Yes, I do. I don't. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Walter Eastling was uh, best friends with my neighbor, John, who got me into hunting and his parents live up there, uh, right on wall road still in a, tra- <laughs> a nice little trailer set up. They always have a big deer camp and fishing camp there. Um, but, uh, yeah, they're, uh, that's, those are the areas that I grew up, uh, in a, you know, my last couple years hunting in Michigan, a lot of people say, well, you can't kill bucks, you know, like you're killing down in Iowa and Michigan. And, you know, you're right. But at the same time, I think the last year I hunted full time in Michigan, I passed 41 or 46 bucks. I forget now uh, from October 1st till November 14th. And I was passing spike horns and fork horns and little six pointers and stuff and, and doing it on public land and enjoying it. And, you know, some of the buddies that I was hunting with, they called me nuts. They're like, you know, <laughs> you're never going to see a buck bigger than that. But the thing I've always been enthralled with just being a part of it and watching it. And I love passing bucks because you get to learn from that experience and you're not tagged out. You can still keep hunting. So I carry those same principles here. Now I'm passing, you know, some really nice, you know, three, four and even five year old deer. Um, But it's the same uh, mentality and the same process It just, you know, now there's a a little bit more diverse age group for me to hunt here. But, you know, when I was in Michigan, I I started honing in on properties outside of public land on private ground um, in just areas where guys weren't really you know, hunting. And so years ago, I got permission to hunt a place around Nunica and it was a private farm. My dad worked with them and they were actually, um, the people were kind of, they weren't hippies, but they were definitely liberal. And (laughs) so it was like, 
didn't even know, but because I was a bow hunter, they let me in. And you know, I know the whole time I was out there, they probably thought this kid doesn't stand a chance. And in the, in the meantime, I killed some really nice bucks out there. But it was another one of those lessons you learn along the way. You got to hunt in the right spot if you're going to kill those big ones. And even in Michigan, they're there. You just got to find those properties nobody else can access. Right. So with that, you say how you like to be involved with it and, um, you know, you enjoy passing these bucks and kind of learning from them. Sure. When you were in Michigan, were you still, had you started filming and started kind of that part of the passion of your bow hunting then, or how did that all come about? No, I, and it, it kind of happened by accident, but, um, when I was just hunting up there, I was just enjoying the process and, and I was trying to kill, you know, mature bucks or, or big bucks at the time. I didn't know what the heck I was doing. I'll be honest with you, but I was passing some younger deer. And when I moved to Iowa, um, in 2005, I hunted hard all season for, um, for this one buck that had been thrashing tree, uh, shredding trees. I called him the Iowa tree shredder. And I ended up killing him finally after like 46 days. But I started doing a blog on, um, at the time it was hunting that. Now the owners, Todd, uh, Justin, are they own boiling.com. But I was just doing a blog, kind of sharing my pictures with my season and, and taking pictures with a digital camera. And this is first generation digital camera where they were, you know, quite large. And, but I, I, I really enjoyed sharing my stories and kind of telling a perspective from a guy who's working really hard and, and, you know, didn't have huge land access and had to kind of do it all himself. And I found there was an audience for it. And before too long, I was actually the most popular author. And there were some big names that were writing, you know, columns on, on hunting net at the time. And but people I started to record with people. And it was just that that blue collar hard work ethic uh, that people that resonated with people, whether you were in Michigan, Florida or anywhere. You know, people like to hear about um I don't know, relatable, relatable topics and things. And I kind of held no punches. I told it like it was. And I just one day it occurred to me, I'm like, I need to start sharing. I need to start videotaping what I'm seeing out in the field because, you know, I'd shoot one of these big bucks and guys would say, oh, if I lived in Iowa, I'd kill these deer, too. And I, I think to myself, no, you wouldn't because, you know, nobody's doing what I'm doing. <laughs> nobody's willing to work full time. And I was doing nothing but working to kill whitetails. I didn't have any relationship, a wife, kids or nothing. I mean, I was so crazy about it. I just that was my opportunity. So it just happened to be. I was back in Michigan visiting. Uh, we I always had at my old house a Wednesday night shooting league, and and I was talking to the, uh, my group of buddies from that were still living in Michigan, and um, and and talking about it and saying, you know, I want to start filming. And and one of them said, you know, you need to talk to Kyle Reindeers. Uh, and anybody from Michigan, uh, West Michigan specifically, is familiar with Reindeers blueberries. They are pretty much synonymous with um, with agriculture in the western part of uh, Michigan, and and I think they're the largest blueberry producer possibly in Michigan, but, um, in the nation, they're huge. So they, um, their son, uh, one of the owner's sons, Kyle had gone to film school in Florida, um, to w literally work in the major motion picture industry. And he went out to Hollywood and worked on a couple independent films and just, uh, he was kind of a farm kid, Christian kid from Michigan and the California lifestyle just did not strike him. So he ended up moving back and I, I met him about the same time and, I said, hey, have you ever thought about filming any hunting stuff? And he, he had never filmed a hunting, uh, anything hunting related and never even at that time had watched a hunting show or even a hunting video. And I was like, you're perfect. That's exactly what I want. Something completely off the off the normal, um, showing a realistic, uh, basically documentary style of how it was to hunt these deer and, and not make it about, you know, promoting products and infomercial and going to outfitters and, and all this big money hunting thing, which is what a lot of the TV shows were at the time. 
Uh, I wanted something completely fresh and raw, uh, but also that had a real element of wilderness and uh, and nature. Uh, And now so many of the shows that we watch are packed full of all this great nature footage and just beautiful drone footage. But back then it was a lot of it was canned, uh, meaning everything was reproduced. So I just wanted to make it feel like you were out there hunting and not ruin it by promoting a bunch of junk in the process. (laughs) So um, that's how White Knuckle was formed. And honestly, when we produced our first DVD, I had no idea what people would think. And we went to the Michigan Deer and Turkey Spectacular and sold our first uh, DVDs, maybe a dozen or something the first day. And on that Saturday morning, I'll never forget, a guy came back to the booth and he's like, I bought this yesterday. I went back and watched it. He's like, that's the best hunting DVD I've ever watched. Probably the best hunting show. And I'm like, you know, we didn't have a clue what we were doing at the time. We were just sharing our story. And so I knew we were onto something, um, but it took, you know, many years and we're still working on, you know, tuning our craft, so to speak. But yeah, back in the old days, the old DVD business, that was a tough business. (laughs) I guess, um, so you didn't start out, you know, I guess the times were, I mean, even... I guess what would that be? Fifteen years ago, yeah. um, there wasn't all of this technology to where you know you're you're you didn't have a phone in your pocket, or if you did it, you right. certainly couldn't take video with it or, or anything like that. <laughs> it was the size of oh, a freaking it's, it's, paint it's amazing what we have today. It's incredible. So when you started out, it wasn't like you were doing it on your own, like a lot of guys are doing today. Sure. With with everything, you started out in my with with the idea in mind to kind of go big or go home? Yeah. And I was in a perfect place to do it because I, I lived in a tiny little apartment in, in Iowa here. I, I think I paid $240 a month because I was trying to just basically be a hunting bum. And uh, But I was building a business on the side as well outside of White Knuckle doing product design and engineering. Uh, and at the time, it was for Lone Wolf Tree Stands. That was my first uh, real client, I guess you could say. And um, so my cameraman came in, he moved in with me uh, October 1st or whatever. We hunted every morning and every night the entire season, which for five years or something almost killed me. Um, <laughs> but hunting with a cameraman had a heck of a lot of challenges. And at the time, that's all I, I wanted, a professional grade quality and all that. Um, and about did that for seven, eight years. And then over the t- over this period of time, I've just started to realize started to learn a lot about hunting mature bucks, uh, big, like five, six, seven, eight year old deer and really started to have, a um, experiences hunting individual animals year after year after year, learning their habits and then seeing how they change each year. And a lot of the spots that I knew I could kill these animals, it was just impossible to get a cameraman. I mean, there was just no way you could get two, two stands in a tree. Um, and it just was the challenge of having two dudes and all twice the noise, twice the scent, twice the equipment. It became too much and I stopped enjoying it. Um, and so I started slowly but surely self-filming and I really fell in love with it. And, and it now has turned into my greatest challenge and passion as self-filming all these adventures with these big deer. But I found it, it gives me a huge, um, advantage when it comes to getting in, in these bedding areas where I like to hunt these bucks and in different spots where I can sneak, sneak in there like a ninja and set up, even if I have to set my tree stand and everything, but I can do much better job self-filming and i'd rather take the chance at not getting the uh at having to pass a shot on the animal because i can't get on video um and, and just have to kill him twice basically and I've, I've had that happen with several big ones in the last several years where you know the first time around trying to kill them you can't sometimes do both you can't film and hunt so i, I always choose to film and i want to get it on camera so in a lot of cases like uh i killed that big 
um, Walter Payton talk about it, give or take 190 type typical last year. And I had an opportunity on Halloween because I was filming. It screwed it up, so I had to kill him again. Same thing with other big bucks I've been hunting. So it's a heck of a challenge, but um, but I I love it, man. It's just turned into my style these days. And and the equipment, like you were talking about, the newer equipment makes it so much easier to get really good quality footage. Um, and just having experience both in the hunting and filming, it, I've been able to kind of combine it and make it my own thing. And I think really any good hunter, it's kind of the same mentality. You've got to kind of take bits and pieces of what you're taught over the years, make them your own, make them work for you in your hunting area. And that's what, you know, that's, that's what the best bow hunters I know are able to do, adapt to the situation and make it work. So when, when you're, uh, going in on self film, uh, sneaking into these bedding areas and stuff, what I just started filming, Adam gave me his muddy camera arm and small camera and I, packed all this stuff in my pack and my pack is like 60 pounds (laughs) yeah man and that's the easy like i'm i'm used to doing uh the run and gun setups where i've over the years i've had to pack stands in and you know your pruner and your camera equipment and all that and it's like then i got 100 pounds so (laughs) now when i go out and just sell film it seems actually easy but it's just like anything it's a process you get used to um and over time you'll you'll learn to uh, replace equipment and i've actually designed a lot of my own equipment like camera arm and everything uh just to suit my own needs because at the time uh you know t- uh, probably 10 years ago there really were very few options in filming now we're very fortunate there's a lot of cool stuff out there and the, the equipment's getting smaller and smaller but yeah you just got to get used to the extra junk and you know the best t- word of advice i mean i hunted i was hunting yesterday and doing the same thing snuck into a bedding area and i ended up I know I was within 60, 70 yards of a doe because she popped right out and started feeding on acorns a few minutes later. But I've been able to set my stands and access in ways where you can use the wind noise, the terrain itself to visually block. Um, And other times I'm literally sneaking in right underneath the noses of these animals. And the best tip I can give you is just plan on taking your time. Um, I think we all get in a big rush of, you know, having to got to get out in a tree, got to get out in a tree. And sometimes I, you know, like during the rut time in a tree is a good thing, but I will take being, uh, extremely, extremely cautious, being very, very fluid. When I move through the woods, I don't want to make any, uh, fast noises, move noises. And I want to, I want to become one of the herd basically. And that's the way I look at it is when I'm hunting these animals, I want them to think I'm another animal, uh, but not a human. And so everything I do is revolves around that, how to not act like a human, sound like a human, um, and hunt like a human, but literally do everything like a, on, uh, like a whitetail or a real animal would in this, in those situations and, and blend in and try to basically imitate the wild. So I guess, you know, for us here in Michigan being public land guys, and you, you kind of alluded to it even in your history saying, you know, that your, your family had bought a, a 40 acre hunting camp and, and that was, that was what you, you grew up on. What do you say, or I guess the perception is that, you know, well, you're in Iowa and it's anybody can kill big deer in Iowa and you don't have to be this super hunter or anything. Um, I've heard it said, I don't know if it was on your podcast or if it was another one, but they said you could put somebody that, that on a property that has big deer and they'd screw it up because of the way that they're used to hunting. They're not hunting. They're not thinking like these big bucks and in your on the podcast that you have, um, that was 
going back over your ghost buck seminar, I think, um, yeah, that you yep. did in Wisconsin, you kind of outlined that hunt or, or your co-host kind of said, you know, why he thought you were crazy for the way that you actually did end up killing that deer. Um, can you kind of like, I don't know, that's like a whole bunch of different questions, but kind of like put that sure. into to a, a, a scenario because I think that that outlines like, A, you don't have to have, you know, a thousand acres and all of these different things to, to manage yep. these deer this way, but you still have to be smart in the way that you hunt them. And, and I think most guys think that it's just easier than it is. Sure. Well, I'll just be straightforward, honest. Here in my neighborhood, here in Iowa, uh, we've got um, smaller tracts of land. I mean, not tiny, like 20s and 10s and stuff like that. But by Iowa standards, you know, there's 40 next door. I own 63. Uh, there's another 14 acres, you know, a 90 here, 100 here, whatever. Every piece of property around me gets hunted. In some cases, literally pounded by all sorts of hunters. And I've got probably, I added it up years ago, it's probably around 20 bow hunters within one mile of my farm. And some of them are hunting right on my property lines. Some of them are hunting, you know, a quarter mile away, whatever. It doesn't matter. The, the point is, I can sit, over the years, I've sat on different parts of my property and listened to my neighbors rattling and can calling and grunting and carrying on, you know, every 10 minutes for two hours at a time. And then go to the other side of my farm thinking I'm going to get away from this. And hearing another neighbor doing the same thing. So it's the same mentality, the same type of hunters in Iowa as there is in Michigan. I mean, not everybody's doing food plots and management and QDM. Around here, It's if it's brown, it's down, period. During shotgun season, it's just the way it is. Um, but like anything, I've learned how to, I guess, kind of manipulate the animals and the hunting situations around here and make them work for me. So I'm going to give you a prime example. Like when, when my dad owned that 40 acres in Michigan it was an okay piece to hunt at the time I didn't know what I was doing but it's basically kind of the same situation here my primary area I pretty much stay out of and leave alone all through October I just let the deer have it and I let uh, the other hunters in my area including myself put pressure on all in all directions and these are not smart hunters they're out there rattling and educating these big bucks and I'm I'm trying to kill the bucks in my neighborhood that nobody else can kill Um, and in the last five years I've killed Nine different bucks that have an average age of seven. Um, and all of these bucks survived in areas where other hunters hunted during bow season, shotgun season, muddle order season, the whole nine yards. But I've just had to figure out how to approach it from a different perspective and be willing to do crazy things nobody else is willing to do. And what you were uh, mentioning about um, the, the buck I killed last year, the Barry, uh, excuse me, uh, Walter Payton is what I called him. Uh, he was living on a, a neighbor's farm, and, and I knew just by trail camera pictures, I was getting pictures of him at night, checking a couple scrapes, and I knew where he was coming and going from on two years of intel, of basically pictures and shed hunting and everything that I do year-round, and he was just not a buck that lived on a farm that I could hunt, but he would come out and check these scrapes, and he was absolutely monstrous and, like, so big that I was like, I would do anything, you know, to get an opportunity at this deer, and so I knew the farmer who owned a piece of property that I was living on, and I knew other guys hunted it, and in fact... There were, they had a stand right in where he was living, uh, of a ladder stand that they'd hunted year after year. But I knew how they had to get in to hunt that farm, and I knew if he had been living there for three or four years, he should have been shot because he was absolutely monstrous as a three-year-old. He was close to 160 inches. And so I knew if they had an opportunity, they would have killed him already. So he was living in a spot they couldn't access without blowing him out. So I kind of got to the point where it was like I needed to shake the tree a little bit. So I called the I called the farmer, told him, you know, I have a great relationship with him. He's a super nice old man. 
Um, and I've helped him out over in the years and he actually lets me access, um, a couple of my trail cameras and stuff like that, just on old farm roads. But, um, I just, I had to ask, I mean, I got to that point where it was like that buck was worth it and I, I wanted him so bad. So I called him up one day and I said, Hey, I know you got other people hunting. I said, I'm after a big buck. He's the, the biggest buck I've seen around here in years. And I, he's living right on your property. I didn't know if you might just let me hunt a day or two. And he, he basically said no. And after he said no, I went into very specifics. I said, yeah, well, he's living right along your creek. And I, I pointed out exactly where it's at, knowing that these guys, he was going to tell us the guys who were on his, on his farm. I knew it. And literally, I hoped that he, he was going to and that he would um, give them a reason to go in there and blow that deer out of there. And they did. And I killed that buck about 500 yards away three days later. So <laughs> there is no tactic that is too crazy, period. Why do you think that it is the way that it is? Is it your mentality is different or you're just more patient? So you're, you're saying I'm going to let these, mm. let these guys push them around and I'm just going to wait for the, the perfect time. And is it showing that restraint because you know the deer on the property or is it because you're just waiting for the, that one opportunity you're saying, I'm going to kill them on the first opportunity and it doesn't matter. And sure. my best opportunity is going to be this time and where everybody else is out there every day. I think the reason that I ask is one of the things that I struggle with and I'm, I'm, I'm changing that this year. I mean, this year I'm changing up my whole hunting strategy instead of, you know, we had talked before the podcast about, you know, having young kids and trying to balance everything. I'm yeah. trying to manage my sits as instead of like, I have an opportunity to hunt. So I'm going to go hunt a spot where I know that I'm going to see that deer a hundred yards away, or I'm going to see a deer, sure. or I'm going to go out to kill a deer. And this is the spot that I'm going to kill him. But, you know, on public land, you know, I don't know that these sure. deer and their pattern. So I'm just going off of my best guess. And it's real easy to fall back into the, well, if I go over here, I'll see deer, but yeah, yep. in years yeah. past, it's ended up being you know, fruitless. But now every sit that I have that I don't see a deer, I at least feel like I gave myself the best opportunity. So. Amen. I, and you just hit the, the nail on the hood. I, I, years ago, for whatever reason, I don't know why, but I, I'm a very impatient person, by the way, like I'm the most impatient person. But one of the guys I spent a lot of time hunting with uh, in Illinois back in the day, he's one of the best whitetail hunters in the country. And, uh, he was also very impatient. He was the last person to leave camp in the afternoon for a hunt and the first person back in the mornings because, you know, he would just say basically he put things in very easy perspective. Like, well, they move at last light or, you know, just after <laughs> first light, then why waste your time in the middle of the day if it's not the right time of year? So like certain things like that. But I'm very impatient at, at times in general, but I'm also it's all about confidence. Um I've just gotten to the point where I'm in my life, whether it's business, family, whatever, you got to have goals. My goals are to kill these big seven-year-old deer. You don't kill deer like that by hunting like all the neighbors do in the same spots they hunt, which is usually ladder stands on field edges or generally in field edges in general. And I think it's for two reasons. Number one, visually, they can see a whole farm and they get to see a lot of animals. And they like that. And some guys do. If that's what makes you happy and that's your goal, then sit out in the open and look at those deer at distances. When I have a bow in my hand, I realized over the years, sitting on those field edges, you just did not, you weren't able to control the situation. So if you can imagine, it's just like, a, 
just like a, the center of a pie, so to speak. If the center of a pie is um, where that buck lives, the further away you get from that center, the more options there are. And it just becomes difficult to really pin them down. So I just started going and hunting the thickest stuff I could possibly find, going on the down one side of the thickest stuff I could possibly find, ignoring sign in some cases and ignoring where all the other animals were. And I found over time that is where you would catch those big mature deer. And sometimes it's boring and lonely. Sometimes you don't see a lot of deer. And in, in fact, when I'm hunting these big old dominant bucks, most of the time where they're calling home, you should not be seeing any younger deer because they are scared to death to even go through that area. And, and in fact, I've watched deer, uh, like three, four, five-year-old deer come through an area and absolutely look like they were on eggshells, like literally like do they have my scent? Do they smell my ground scent? And then, you know, it occurs to you like, no, they're literally scared coming through here because that big boy has, has this area covered. They know it and they know they're in the spot they should not be in. So you got to change your mindset when you're hunting these old deer that nobody else can kill you. If you've been doing the same thing year after year after year and, and getting the same results or not getting the results that you're looking for, then you just got to be honest with yourself and saying something's not working here. And one of the things I really like to recommend to guys, and I have to do it to myself sometimes, is take a step back and say to yourself, where I'm hunting right now on the property that I'm hunting, where has no one ever hunted? And I don't care if it's 10 feet behind your neighbor's house, sitting on top of an old car, sometimes those are the best spots to catch big bucks because they just haven't been harassed there. And they're going to live in the place they can survive first because if you think about it, if a buck is moving around during daylight and it's it's willing to come into calling and it's and it's active and and does what everybody what other every other buck does which is going through those those perfect pinch points and and back corners of field edges it probably will already have been shot so it won't make it to that seven-year-old so to make it through that it's like forced evolution like they have already survived the gauntlet you are not going to kill that deer with the same style of hunting that you've done before if it survived there and you've been hunting him all this time. So you've just got to look at it from a different perspective. And that's when having a, like we use lone wolf tree stands and, and doing run and gun tactics with, you know, portable equipment and the right equipment, it makes a difference, but you've got to have a little bit of crazy in you, man. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, the, the, the more we look at, you know, all of these consistent, successful land, uh, public land hunters, um, you know, that's, that's the trend and that's, um, yep. you know, everything in addition to all of the scouting, um, I guess without having, and then, and this may go back a little ways for you, sure. but without having the, um, trail cam pictures or anything like that, you know, we're, we're into, I would say coming up on the best time to be in the woods right now. So while you're, yep. if you're going into the woods, woods blind, like say to a new area, you have an idea of, of where you're going to go. You had said previously, you know, ignoring the sign, what is it that you're looking for right now? You know, a, as you go into a spot blind. Sure. Um, right now, in my opinion, you got to be looking for the does. This is when bucks are going to be transitioning off of their, their fall routine from, hey, I'm living my life for myself and for survival to, hey, I'm living my life to breed. And this is my favorite time of year to hunt is when these bucks start moving in these dope bedding areas. They become very vulnerable because they're it's not their – generally, it's not their um, the area they spend most of their life. 
So they're a bit vulnerable in those areas, uh, but they a lot of times use the eyes and ears of the other animals, the does around them. But the big dominant bucks that I'm hunting, they'll literally go in and set up shop right into a doe bedding area. And sometimes they don't even leave. They literally will stay in the timber and I won't get pictures of them or nothing until mid-November because they don't have to go anywhere. But for most guys, what I would say this time of year, you've got to be focusing on where the highest concentration of does are. Wherever those does are at, that's generally where a dominant buck is going to be hanging out. Um, the, the problem, though, with those dominant bucks are the older age class, they just don't move around like you see on television. <laughs> right. like, you know, I, we have guys, uh, I'm friends with a lot of guys who have some unbelievable farms, better, way better quality areas than mine where they just, the deer aren't pressured. And so they move around during daylight. They have lots of daytime pictures of these big bucks. I mean, like, for example, like Mark and Terry Jury, they're about as good as anybody at this point and their properties are excellent they know what they do and they have years of experience so they have pretty active bucks um, that don't make them work so hard so they can pretty much catch them out in the open on their food plots by not putting pressure on uh, and letting the bucks just act naturally well the rest of us um, and and everybody has a different uh, variance of this but uh, you know pressure deers don't move around very much so my dominant buck generally will set up shop in a doe bedding area or right next to a doe bedding area where it's very close to water a primary green food source that i hopefully have planted like a kill plot and then some major major agriculture um, corn beans things like that but to catch them out in the open it's usually one or two days a year and i'm not kidding you like one or two days a year they're vulnerable so on one or two days a year to try to pinpoint exactly where he's going to be moving, how he's going to be moving once the rut starts, you know, good luck, man. That's that's not how you kill consistent deer. It's not by sitting in a pinch point and just hoping for the best. Uh, maybe some deer, but not the bucks I'm hunting. The dominant bucks just don't move much. So over the years, I've just tuned my way into moving a lot. And so now I've got property that I hunt year after year so I can set it up in advance knowing what I know and, and have a little bit of the work done in advance. So like this afternoon, I'm going to go into a spot first time in, spend a long time trimming it and access trails and everything so that I could sneak in and, and be ready to kill. But if I was hunting public land or hunting a new property, I'd be doing it the same way, but I just have to have a tree stand on my back and a saw. I think generally move around until you're seeing what you want to kill and don't stop moving until you do. Uh, and that's where the impatience comes in. Then once you find those areas where you're pretty sure a big one's held up, that's when you've got to be patient and hunt smart. Um, but that's my best piece of advice is I think mo most guys just hunt the same stands over and over and over again because it's easier to do that and because they're afraid of uh, bumping something or blowing something out. And I don't know, the way I look at it is I don't want to get trail camera pictures of these deer and I don't want to see them at 500 yards. I want to kill them. And if there's... A 50-50 shot that if I go into that bedding area and set up and kill them or I blow them out, I'd rather take the chance and blow them out because uh, generally they'll be back anyway uh, unless you really bugger them out. But, um, yeah, I think uh, I like to be aggressive, and, and it's killed a lot of big bucks for me over the years, so that's kind of just how I fall. Do you uh, do you focus much on the moon phase or, you know, like the pressure, the, you know, basically the climate conditions? Um, I don't, I don't even, I don't even look at the moon at all. Um, I've had, there's a bunch of guys that I know who believe in it. And there's a bunch of guys that I know, uh, who are scientists and biologists who say there's no correlation between any data, uh, of any, uh, collared deer in the moon phase. I am 100% all about weather. Weather fronts trump everything. 
And that's the huge advantage that I have of literally living right where I hunt is that I'm not taking vacation days and I only have five days to hunt or a specific day to hunt. I watch the weather and there are a lot of days, I mean, up until this, up until like this week, I really haven't hunted that much. I've hunted a couple times here and there. Um, and, and usually this time of year for me, it's, it's more scouting hunting, uh, meaning where if I'm going in and out of an area, I can pick up a lot of Intel on the way of knowing what deer are moving through the area, what kind of buck signs there, where the tracks are. If I see any deer, then when I'm hunting, I'm getting Intel. And then on my way out, I'm getting Intel. Uh, and like last night, I mean, I'm in a, I'm in a killer bedding area. It's prime time, just getting dark. And I left early, five minutes early so that I could glass two fields on my way out. Like I'm always trying to learn something. And I think, you know, I think that's a lot of it is I think some people either are sponges and they want to learn and some people may be a little bit more complacent or I don't know, maybe have an ego or something like, Oh, I know what I'm doing. And I've never had that. I've always wanted to learn. So, um, I think the more you're willing to learn all the time, uh, the better hunter you're going to be period. Uh, but yeah, I'm not afraid to try crazy things. That's where I have, I have no fear when it comes to getting in tight on these deer. Um, and I absolutely, that's what gets me going now more than anything is literally sneak in where, you know, a big buck is probably bedded within 50 or 60 yards of you and being able to get in, get set up without making a single noise, or at least a metallic noise. Um, that's, dude, that's where it's at. I love it. So like, what would be your like perfect weather condition? Like, you know, cold front coming in high pressure, low pressure. What, what would be like, what do you look for when you, uh, the, generally the best conditions that I enjoy hunting the most are after a, a hardcore storm comes through when it, when it rains for a long period of time, like 24 hours or 12 hours, eight hours, like when you get a really good rain, when that rain lets up, it is like a light switch. All the deer get up, especially if it's been cold and nasty and windy, the, the nastier, the wetter, the weather, the better. Uh, and, and that goes against a lot of people's thoughts as far as wind and stuff here in Iowa, we get all that wind off the plane. So it's windy here all the time. It's pretty regular. We, we pretty regularly have 15, 20 mile an hour winds. And when I first moved here, it drove me nuts because it was like, you couldn't hear anything. It's, you know, a lot moving around. The deer aren't going to move in those conditions. Or at least that's what I thought. And the more I hunted and realized like the windier it is, these deer, their, their most powerful weapon is right on the front of their face in their nose. And the best way that I can describe it from a human perspective is imagine you can, when you look around in the room with our perfect vision, we have the great, one of the best vision in the animal kingdom humans do and a brain to be able to take all the information you're getting from colors, depth perception, distance, the detail we have in our vision is absolutely astounding. Imagine having that in the power of your nose. And that's how these deer live and die. They trust their nose over everything. The windier it is, the tighter it keeps all the scent molecules, basically allows them to take better advantage of their nose. They can smell further distance. They can get higher concentrations of individual smells because the wind is keeping everything in a nice straight line, so to speak. That is when I see the most big buck movement is in those days where you're like, you know, sometimes afraid to fall out of the tree because it's blowing so hard. The nastier the weather, man, I'm telling you, I see that's when I see most of my big bucks. And unfortunately, that's hard to film through. The only the only thing I would say is like if it's pouring down rain monsoons, usually you won't see anything moving. Um, but I've had uh, from the house I've watched on a, on one day it was an absolute monsoon, and 
I saw four bucks in about five minutes and realized that a hot dough must have just run through. And it was literally raining so hard you could hardly see 50 yards. Um, but other than that, if it's not pouring down rain, just after those fronts come through is absolutely the best time to be in the woods. This time of year when you're out there and, you, you know, you've, you've mentioned about, you know, being so quiet and being, you know, no metallic type noises and, yep. and things like that. You also had said, you know, you talked about calling. And, yep. you know, if anybody's been following along with anything that you're doing, you know, you developed a product that, you know, I've been looking at all the comments on the the Hunting Beast forum on uh, Facebook and, man, guys are just like, it's just a gimmick. They've been beating you up sure. here and there. Um, so can you discuss kind of like your calling tactics for sure. for for us? You know, I mean, I, I've had success grunting in bucks and can calling in you know, little deer, um, never anything rattling. And we just got back from, from elk hunting. And I was talking to one of my buddies that's out in Colorado and, you know, while we were out there, it was just, you're just calling, you're just calling, you're breaking stuff. You're jumping over things. You know, the whole thing was everyone we talked to said elk make noise. They don't worry about that. You know, any sound Correct. don't hunt them like whitetail. So the first sit this year, in a whitetail stand was like, this is stupid. I should be calling. I should be making noise. I should be, you know, it was way, way too, uh, I don't know, complacent. I felt like. Well, the, um, my calling kind of evolved from back in the day. I mean, literally we all grew up watching all these shows and rattling. So when I first started hunting down here, I was like, holy cow, this is going to be so much fun. Now I can rattle in all these big bucks. And so I did, I rattled like crazy and all my buddies were into it and just over time picking things up especially from more educated hunters who are killers and i'm talking guys who are killing mega world-class deer and have been doing so for years um and you very rarely heard them talk about calling and so i would always i was never afraid to ask questions so i'd ask all these guys different questions and i kind of came to a consensus like most of these guys weren't rattling in their big box. And if you even talk about grunting or anything, they, they just didn't call that much. So I'm a little impatient though. So while I started hunting in here in Iowa, um, and just in my local neighborhood, I just listened to so many neighbors rattling and carrying on during their hunts where I was just, I came to a conclusion. I'm like, so long as I'm rattling and I'm not seeing these big ghost bucks that I know are around, like they're onto me. They have to be onto me. So I just kind of went anti-calling and I just quit calling altogether pretty much for several years. But what I always found uh, fascinating was real natural behavior um, and just observing, you know, I've been hunting 15, 15, 30 years now total, but like the last 15, pretty much full time in Iowa. Um, and, and so I've just been able to immerse myself in their world. And I just found a lot of the calls on the market are just not that common to hear in the wild. Uh, for example, uh, rattling. I heard, I've heard one big buck fight around this property in, in 15 years. Well, in Iowa in general, 15 years of hunting, I've only heard one big buck fight and it was in the timber and I had never heard anything like it. I couldn't even tell it was a buck fight. I thought honestly, somebody was driving a truck or something through the timber and it just sounded like smashing trees, breaking brush, and, and a lot of leaves and, and heavy hooves. And occasionally you just hear a click of an antler. And I watched deer come running in from all directions. We saw like six or seven deer have it all on video actually. Um, and I just, I couldn't believe the reaction of the other animals. They knew what it was and they absolutely needed to see what deer were fighting. It was like instinctual. 
kind of like, you know, if you're at a if you're at a bar or restaurant and, you know, a fight breaks out at night, what do you do? Naturally, do you want to go see what's <laughs> happening? It's just it's built into your instincts some way, shape or form. And um, just kind of came to the conclusion. I'm like, there's no way you can duplicate that sound. So over the years, I just came up with my own grunting tactics where I would I still use a grunt call. But everything you see on television and, and what the marketing companies are showing is people grunting repeatedly. But uh, uh, three times was always the thing I was taught when I was a kid, you know, grunt three times and, and wait. And I'm, I'm watching out in the field and I'm like, you know, I never watch a buck stand in one spot and grunt three times. Like if anything, you, they're chasing a doe or they're on the move, but there's always a, there's always associated noises coming with those multiple sounds. And I just, it didn't sound natural, you know, just grunting more than once. So I, I've become very good the last few years of just manipulating bucks either bedding area over two or three hours of time by only grunting once about every 20 to 30 minutes and always changing the tone the direction and using my voice half of the time if if you imagine a buck laying in his bed and he's listening to you up in a tree and it, it's the same sound over and over and over from the same spot but he doesn't hear any rustling leaves he doesn't hear anything walking around doesn't hear anything eating chasing does and he's seven years old he knows the difference between what a real deer sounds like and a hunter. So the first thing you got to do is not sound like a hunter, period. Like, I don't care about any other calling. You can't sound like a hunter. If you do, you, you've already been busted and you don't know it and you'll never know it. And you'll probably never see that buck or kill that buck out of that stand ever again because he's got your number. So how do you not sound like a deer, uh, a hunter? You don't call, you don't call twice in the same direction. You don't sound the same in each call because that doesn't sound natural. Deer always have weird looking, weird sounding grunts, this, that, and the other. But the consistent that I noticed was I never heard does bawling. The I've never heard it. I have heard a lot of buck grunts and I've watched how buck grunts work over the years just by doing that one call. And within 10 to 15 minutes, all of a sudden here comes a deer. Um, But it's not an instant here they come tearing in and then they hold up at 80 to 100 yards because that's what rattling usually will produce an animal that comes in and is real leery of what's going on so while i was doing this grunting i had success with it and was killing some really nice deer but i felt like i was missing a tool and so i on one particular hunt i was hunting a giant eight-year-old that i called the rusty nail and i was sitting outside of his bedding area playing it safe on a hunt and it was in late october so before i'm i'm willing to go barging into their bedroom and we heard him tearing up trees in that bedding area and at first again i didn't even know what it was because it sounded so unbelievable just the amount of breaking branches and leaves thrashing and i thought my neighbor or somebody else was out hunting uh hanging a tree stand or something i mean it was just like what is that and we watched we were on the end of a crp field where we could see several other deer and all those deer went to that sound and i was just sitting there going that's that buck in there thrashing and he's letting the neighborhood know and they're coming to see and see what buck it is. And it just like planted a seed in my brain. I'm like, my God, if you could figure out a way to be able to produce those noises and then just have one grunt to accommodate that, I bet you would see a lot more deer. And so for three years, the last three years, I've laid awake in bed trying to figure it out. And the tree thrasher is my version of that, which is uh, basically, and I actually have one right here. I can just make the sounds, but you know, the sounds of leaves, whether it's stomping or footsteps to thrashing a tree, adding some brake branches. And then the tool itself has uh, knobs you can rub on the tree. So basically, you know, without ma- making it sound like a gimmick, because I know a lot of people have looked at it and said, what is this? I'll just put it to you this way. Like any call, if you go out and you start 
just going crazy and using it too much, it's not going to be effective. But if you add a few extra sounds and add that thrashing sound in the timber and follow it up with a single grunt, it will increase the number of deer you see. We haven't been testing it long enough to know what the percentage is, but guys are calling in does like crazy with this thing because does, it's something instinctual. It's not a curiosity thing, but they are attracted to aggressive behavior and the sounds of aggressive behavior. And you got to think about it. This is the way they communicate in the field. They, don't, they can't talk or yell. You know, they've got a, a very limited, limited uh, range of vocalizations that you don't hear very often other than just a grunt. I mean, you'll hear a snort wheeze occasionally, but to me, those sounds create a more cautious environment than natural. And I want to sound natural. So the calls I do are minimal, but just those extra sounds increase the number of deer that come in and you basically sell them on your call that you're not a hunter, you're a real animal and you've got the sounds of a real animal. So you, you basically, um, you dupe them basically. And so with that, what's the, what's the tag situation like in Iowa? Is is it a one buck state and then you get doe tags? Um, I guess, you know, thinking about that when you're you're using this and you're trying to you're calling in all sure. these different deer and you're targeting say a, a seven year old yep. buck where you're gonna get one chance all year. I mean, how many deer are you harvesting a year and and, and that sort of thing? How how does it work in Iowa? Well, we have um, a pretty killer system here, which is actually part of the reason I moved here. But with a with a bow, I can kill three bucks a year um, with a bow. That's if I have a landowner tag as well, which I do. Um, so I've got one tag that I'm restricted to hunting only my property with, which is the one I kind of, I like to burn first, so to speak, um, because I can still then hunt everywhere. In the past, I've killed a buck off my property, and then I'm stuck to hunting the 63 acres for the rest of the season. I like to move around just so I can uh, experience the season, if nothing else. Um, but uh, we can kill three bucks a year. Uh, last year I killed three for my first time ever, uh, three different seven-year-olds. Um, I killed the last one with a muzzleloader. Um, and it was my, actually my first buck I ever killed with a gun, but, um, I'm a bow hunting maniac. So down here you can basically kill two with a bow early season and then one late. Um, but I'm usually very, very, very picky, um, and waiting on individual bucks. And for example, I'm, I'm waiting on an eight year old right now that hasn't shown up all summer. I haven't gotten a single picture of him, but my gut is if he's still alive and didn't die of EHD this summer, unfortunately, um, then he'll be around during the rut. So in that case, I've got to be patient, but once I know he's there, Oh brother, I'm going to be diving in. Um, but I, the tag system is killer here, so it just makes it a lot easier. But you've got to realize, like, the way I have my, all my stands and everything, like, for example, where I went in last night, I'm adjacent to a, a bedding area that will hold a big buck, has all the right ingredients. So I'm imagining he's bedded there. And so before I leave, I want to do what I can to potentially pull him out during daylight and get a crack at him without blowing him out if he's just not interested. So that's where the thrasher comes in. Like, I would put... Like rattling is a 10 as far as aggressiveness and also risk of spooking because you either, either they come in or they know you're a human rattling and they're not interested and they'll never, you'll never kill them from that set probably again. Um, where I'm at is when I get into these spots, everything's set up, the prop, the, everything's trimmed. I put all the work in. I got in there. I didn't blow anything. Then I want to coax him out. And if I know a buck is within 100 yards, I am going to try to pull him out of that bedding area, that hunt. Because you got to get down, you got to move out of there. If he if he hears you move out, he's going to come and scent check where you are at, 
based on where he was bedded if he heard something move through there or naturally he'll just come through there and a lot of times they'll catch a ground scent so that that time that you're in that stand is literally your opportunity and so that's where i am a little bit more aggressive probably than some with my calling because i only get so many opportunities at these big bucks i mean they they're there or they're not and they have a lot of other options uh and a lot of other guys are doing who knows what so I try to take advantage of every single hunt. And so that's where like the tree thrasher, I only did it once last night, one thrashing session with two grunts uh, in three hours, three and a half hours or whatever. And as the rut gets going, I'll do a little bit more aggressive. But with whitetails, less is more. And you once you kind of realize that, you like you start to appreciate the small sounds, making a little bit of leaf rustles, a couple branches breaking. You know, there's not too many animals in the timber that break branches and they're large bodied mammals. So it's either a hunter or a deer. And that's why I always like to follow my thrash session up with one single grunt because it puts two and two together, so to speak. Um, and it validates that you're the real thing. Their guard goes down and they will be coming naturally through your area in 10 to 15 minutes. And it's like consistent. It's unbelievable. Sweet. So you had mentioned um, the EHD there. Is, is that something that's going through there? now again and what's the status of like the cwd in your area well ehd is something we've had um in the last 10 years it's been spotty uh there were certain parts in southern iowa that got hammered i know lee lakoski and bill winky and and the juries and several guys they had farms that were wiped out uh but we were never we're in henry county which is kind of an oddball county a little north um but we we were never hit hard and then this summer we just had the perfect perfect drought unfortunately i found seven myself uh dead right in our creek and uh, i know of several other neighbors three or four other different neighbors who have found several as well and it just we just didn't get the storms when we needed to they all went north and south but we were the hardest hit county and so you don't know you know how how deep the impact was i won't until i really actually start shed hunting this next year that's when i'll find all the different deer in my area but um there's nothing you can do about it. So I'm just praying that, you know, we still have a couple big ones running around. I know we do, but compared to other years, we're way down as far as big bucks. Um, but as far as CWD, I haven't really heard too much about it. And to be honest, there's a lot of talk about it in the industry. And it's just something I just don't know that much about. Um, I'm just not educated to it. And to be honest with you, I really don't care to be. I got enough crap to worry about. So um, CWD is not one of them. And I don't think it's an, a major issue in general when it comes to the deer herd based on um, the educated guys I know who have been doing this whitetail stuff for a long time and a lot longer than myself. And, and they seem to believe it's somewhat of a political stunt. I'm just curious because, you know, you're talking about Nuego County. That's the the one of the management zones. Muskegon County's in one of the management zones. They had Jeez. active case in, in Kent County. And then there's just been some another active case up. We've got property in the UP that's um, four miles from where they found an active case of CWD up there as well. So uh, basically all of the hunting that uh, we're going to be doing this year is in the CWD management zones. <laughs> so, Oh, uh, I, and I have a bad taste about it because, um, I have a bunch of good friends from Wisconsin, um, mm -hmm. who over the years, and this is going back when it first was the big scare back in the two thousands, early two thousands. I don't remember what the exact time frame was, but probably around 2008, 2009, 2010 sometime. Um, and I had friends who, uh, who's had some property, um, uh, family property for 30 years of whitetail management. And I mean, these guys had it down. They've got some of the best whitetails around, um, absolutely worked their butts off. Their family worked their butts off three brothers and a dad their whole lives. 
and in a matter of basically two years, the Wisconsin DNR completely destroyed the deer herd, literally. So my question is, what's worse? A bunch of de- uh, a few deer walking around with CWD with no necessary real proof that it does anything, or all the deer dead? And they basically exterminated whitetails. Guys were killing 15 bucks a year on limited tags. If you think that's good for the deer herd, then I think you're going to the wrong college. <laughs> that's great. Like right now in Muskegon, if you uh, with private land, you can buy 10 tags, 10 doe tags. That's just insane. They're nuts. I, I think it has to, I think it's all to do with the insurance companies. Yeah, for sure. You got to, usually when it comes to anything like this, just follow the money. Well, and I think too, I mean, I, I, I've got a, a pretty serious science background and I've got a lot of people around me that are, that are smart um, as far as like on the, on the subject. But to me, it just seems like um, a kind of like cover your butt sort of situation for politics because nobody wants it to make that mad cow disease jump to humans and they don't sure. want that on their watch but is that is that the scare now is that they really they think it's i always figured it had to do with livestock like if there was a way that it was transmitted to livestock sheep cattle horses uh, you know but again it's all money yeah you know, those it, industries are big money um but is there that's what they're concerned with is that it's going to have some sort of a human connection yeah it falls into the same category as mad cow disease as far as the way that the the disease um i guess occurs in in cervids and so what they're worried about is you know it's passed through the droplets and all that and so you know no baiting nose to nose contact that's the way that it spreads but it also is in say crops and what they don't want is either you to get it, it, it to make the jump to humans from eating okay. venison or those droplets going into soybeans, soybeans going into whatever, you know, those droplets going into to corn and then corn going into humans and then it's making the jump. So, yeah, there's a lot of theories around there. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I can't imagine. Oh, 100%. I'm glad that that's not my job. I'll put it to you that way, brother. <laughs> right, right. But, you know, I just really appreciate you, you know, taking the time out for us today. We've had you for, for nearly an hour here, and I know you're a real busy guy. Um, you know, is there anything that you want to say, um, you know, in, in parting, or, or where can people, uh, you know, follow I, along with everything that you're doing? Absolutely. Uh, number one thing is, I, I, I realize everybody's limited on time. We're always trying to rush out to the tree stand, but I'm going to tell you right now, you always got to make time for safety. Um, I don't care who you are, what you do. If you're in great shape and you lift all season or you're 500 pounds overweight, you always got to wear a safety harness and just be careful out there. I'll tell you, you can be as hardcore as you want to, but you're not going to be nearly as hardcore if you're bound to a wheelchair or in a casket because you were worried about wasting 10 minutes or 80 bucks on a harness. Um, dude, you just got to do it. And I'll tell you, being safe is more enjoyable. Uh, and I have safe lines on all my stands. So safety is the number one thing I, I just try to emphasize with everybody and just take the time, be patient, take the extra time to be quiet. And once you're on stand, limit your movements. I always try to act like I am water or the wind and just be fluid. Do not make any quick moves, move your head very slowly. It's amazing how many uh, guys get busted every year on stand without even knowing it because they're just moving around too much. So learn to embrace the pain and, um, and just, uh, good luck. Shoot straight. Take an extra couple seconds when you aim. Good advice. All right. Well, thanks Todd. And we, we, like I say, we do appreciate it. I think that's all we've got, uh, got for today. So thanks. Awesome. Thanks guys. 
Sit down.